0: Well, people tend to look at time and how we use our time in one of two ways. There are the people who sit down to a plate of food, and they look and they see what their favorite item of food is, and they eat it first, because they want to indulge right away with what their favorite thing is. And then there are other people who look at the plate of food and see what their favorite thing is, and they save it for last. That they eat all the other stuff, they get out of the way of the hard stuff, and they want to savor and delay the gratification that they know they're going to enjoy most. And all of us, most likely, are one of those two people that we either want to indulge right away, whether it's eating our dessert first or things like that, or we are the people who want to save that thing for later. And so today, in our passage, Peter wants us thinking about time. Not necessarily in those terms with our food, but it is how we use our time and what is the purpose of our time. And it's kind of a nice time to be doing this with our time change because today in our sermon passage from 1 Peter, we need to adjust or correct our understanding of time to put it not with daylight savings or standard time, but to have it in line with biblical time with biblical time how are we thinking biblically about our time and how are we using it and so this morning we're going to continue looking at first peter as we have for the past few months we'll be in first peter chapter 4 first peter is a book in the new testament it's towards the very end of the bible it was written by peter the disciple one of the closest followers of jesus about 30 years after the life death and resurrection of jesus and he's writing to a group of Christians that are scattered through a multicultural Roman empire, struggling and trying to figure out how am I supposed to live as a Christian when doing the right things as a Christian gets me in trouble in my society. It causes suffering or shame from others. So here we are looking at First Peter, and we'll be in chapter 4 today, verses 1 through 11. And I want us thinking about time 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. The prophet Isaiah says that as the rain falls and brings forth fruit on the earth, nourishing the land, so does Your Word go forth and fall on us like rain to bring spiritual nourishment. And so today, O Lord, May the words of my mouth be your words, and may they fall on us like rain to bring spiritual nourishment through the power of your Holy Spirit, for your word is your power. Lord, speak to us today. Open our hearts and minds to receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So thinking about time today with this passage, a biblical sense of time That our understanding of time, according to this passage, will lead us away from selfish sin and towards service of our eternal God. And so, I want us to see in our passage two correctives for time today. Two ways in which we may think about time and how we use it in our lives and how they need to be adjusted based on God's timeline. So, our first corrective for time is in the beginning of chapter 4. And we see again in 1 Peter a mention of suffering. It seems like as we've been going through this letter that we can't go 10 verses without Peter mentioning suffering in some way. It's a major theme of what he's writing. And part of the reason for that is that Jesus set an example that he was willing to suffer, that suffering was necessary in his life. And so he tells Christians, arm yourselves, with that same way of thinking that Jesus had, that you need to be willing to suffer in this life. But that idea of, yeah, I'm willing to suffer, goes against an understanding of time that is embraced by our culture and was certainly embraced in Peter's culture. See, many people understand time in this way, that time is short. We only have one life to live, so let's enjoy it. Or as the kids popularized it, YOLO, you only live once. And so we want to live in that way, that you only live once, let's go for it. Enjoy life to the fullest, indulge your desires, treat yourself, finish that bucket list, eat, drink, and be merry. After all, life is short. Why deny yourself things that you desire? And why on earth would you follow a God who tells you to spend this one life you have by denying your desires and suffering why would you do that that's one understanding of time see that attitude is the kind of people that might eat their favorite food first that go to the church potluck and they just go straight for the dessert table like why why wait you know let's just go let's have the good stuff right away they want to enjoy what they can now and not worry about waiting and they think anyone who does differently is just weird. Peter explains this in verses 3 through 4. He writes this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. See, we may think that we have a pretty open and indulgent culture today, but so did the Romans in the Roman Empire. That the pagans of Peter's day had an attitude of indulging now. They wanted to go to the big parties for drinking and pleasure. And they couldn't understand how their friends, who used to go to these parties, who used to go to these temples, now decided, you know what? I'm going to follow this God that says, don't do all these things that I used to think were fun. And endure suffering. It just did not compute in their brains. And yet Peter is telling the Christians some encouragement here. He's saying, understand that the time for such things is in the past. The time for selfish, sinful indulgence is in the past. That now it is time for this, he writes in verse 2, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that is this life, No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, as Christians, we now seek to avoid sin. Even if those sins are things we might desire. Even if those sins might be things that the world approves of. And so we willingly endure suffering following the example of Jesus. But that often makes us feel like we're missing out. There's an understanding of Christianity that is, it's only a religion to tell you what not to do. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And you're spending your time avoiding rather than accomplishing anything. But back in verse 1, Peter shows us that we're not simply avoiding things. We're not spending our time just not doing things for the sake of not doing things. We are doing something. He writes this, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that phrase, has ceased from sin, causes people a lot of issues. Like, does that mean we're done sinning altogether? Well, no. From the rest of the Bible, we know that in this life now, we will continue to struggle with sin. Now, that's very clear from the rest of Scripture, especially in 1 John, that we will wrestle with our sinfulness either until we are dead or until Jesus returns. And so what Peter means is that when we choose to suffer rather than choose to sin, it is evidence that we have truly avoided sin. Think about it this way. If you're in a group of your friends... And your friends around you are gossiping and speaking badly about that one person that gets on everybody's nerves. And you, out of a feeling that I need to obey God, decide not to chime in with surely the snarky and snide comments in your brain. You say, no, that would be wrong. I don't want to do that. And your friends turn to you and go, what, you're not going to say anything? You think you're too good to do this? That suffering, that mockery, that feeling of difference shows that you had in that moment ceased from sinning in that way. Or perhaps for a slightly younger generation, if you have a group of friends that want to go and get hammered drunk after the school dance, and you say, well, I'd rather not do that. Their mockery of your goody-two-shoes attitude, that suffering is evidence that you ceased from that sin in that time. See, the world often lives by that credo of you only live once, and yet Christians are called to live for Christ. Our understanding of time tells us that our enslavement to sin ended when Jesus died on the cross, that he was crucified for our sins. He freed us from sin so that we can live for God instead of for ourselves. And though the world may approve of these sinful practices, Though we may be mocked for not joining in, we can find comfort in knowing that God's grace is helping us every time we choose suffering over sin. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I willing to follow Christ, choosing the ridicule of the world rather than the sin that I desire? Am I willing to forsake the culture to forsake being liked, to perhaps even forsake friends in order to avoid sin and follow Jesus? Am I willing to live as though sin is behind me and I have another purpose? Is my purpose finding happiness and enjoyment today or bringing glory to my eternal God who suffered in my place? How do we understand time? We need to be corrected in our understanding of time that it is not all about indulgence now. There is a purpose for living for God now. But Peter offers a second correction for time as well, that apparently our watches need multiple corrections here. And we can see it in verses 7 through 11. Peter opens verse 7 by saying, The end of all things is at hand. You kind of expect Peter to be wearing one of those sandwich boards and walking down the street, maybe ringing a bell. The end is near. The end is near. Now, Peter may not have thought Jesus was coming back right then. Peter was most likely thinking that on the biblical timeline, the next big event that needed to happen was Jesus to come back. There may be like smaller events that could happen, but really, in the grand scheme of things, the thing we've been waiting for for 2,000 years is the same thing, the next thing on the timeline, and that is Jesus coming back. And so in that way, Jesus' return is at hand. It is the next thing that needs to happen. It could happen at any moment. And so with that in mind, Peter writes, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And here we find another perspective of time that is embraced by our culture. The idea that the future is coming, and we must be self-controlled and frugal today for the sake of tomorrow. Thinking back, these are the people who save their favorite food for last. The planners, the savers who delay their gratification to enjoy it later. See, in the world, we see this understanding with people who are focused on saving for retirement that they would rather suffer or face hardship or tight times now for the sake of a sooner retirement or a better retirement. We also see it in doomsday preppers who like to store up their bunker full of canned goods and other supplies just in case the end may come, whether it's nuclear, zombie, or some other kind of end. People live not for now, but for another time in the future. They live for the future instead of the present, And that takes a lot of self-control. And yet, much of that self-control, much of that future-mindedness is still focused on ourselves. Instead of immediate self-gratification, it is delayed gratification of our desires. The focus is still on ourselves, on using time to our advantage, And yet, Peter calls us to adjust our understanding of time, to not use it for our future, but to see how we can serve others and serve God now. He goes on to give examples of how we do this. He writes, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love in Scripture is never that mushy feeling of infatuation that you might have had when you were in junior high or high school. Love is always sacrifice. It is saying that this other person is more important and I want to show them that they are more important. And that is to be shown to one another, to the Christian community. He's saying the end is near, but instead of focus on yourselves, the end is near, love one another. Huh, you don't see that on the doomsday prepper shows. Like, all right, the end is coming. Let us reach out and love one another and care for them. No, it's it's always how am I gonna protect mine, my future, He says, love one another. It covers a multitude of sins. The way in which we hurt one another, love covers over that. One such way we can love one another is being hospitable. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In ancient times, Christians probably didn't have a lot of extra material goods. And so when a traveling brother or sister in Christ came through town... They'd need to stay somewhere. The Holiday Inn Express had not been invented yet, and so they needed to find a place to crash. And that would involve opening up your home, your goods, your resources, that you might have been hoping to save in case you had a time of crisis. And so the decision would come, am I saving for the future or am I serving now? Peter calls them to serve and without grumbling but to love and be happy to serve those in need. He continues this idea in verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. See, if we receive a gift and we're focused on saving for later then we will typically take that gift and invest it for our future. Peter is saying that as Christians, we have been given gifts. And we are not called to invest them for our future, but to serve one another with what God has given us. He's thinking here especially of spiritual gifts, of ways in which the Holy Spirit has blessed us to serve the church. And we do this for others For this reason, in verse nine, verse eleven, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, Amen. Note how Peter does not say, "You should serve one another in the church and pour out for one another," because in the end God will reward that, and you'll have so much more in heaven. That's not the reasoning he's using. There are heavenly blessings, sure. It does say store up treasures in heaven. And yet here, Peter doesn't want us thinking about ourselves and our future. He says, I want you thinking about the glory of God. About the glory of God. In this passage, there's numerous references to time. There's like five, six, or seven references to time here in the passage. And yet only one thing is described as timeless. As lasting forever and ever. And it is the glory and dominion of God. See, if you think back to our Old Testament reading in Daniel 3, the people in Babylon likely saw Nebuchadnezzar raising up this image as the sign of permanent reign and rule. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I want your glory, I want your worship. And everyone focused on the there and now bowed down realizing i got to protect myself now because this guy's in charge now. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognized that Nebuchadnezzar's time was short. Though that image looked so solid and sturdy and unmoving and it was never going to go away, it seemed like the world had changed definitively. They knew it was gold, gold that someday would be melted down and made into whatever jewelry we're wearing today, or in some bank or vault somewhere. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar would someday die. They knew that his glory was fading, temporal, not permanent, but God's glory lasted forever. God's Glory lasted forever. And so Christians are called to focus not on ourselves or on others who are temporary in that way. Our focus is on the glory of our eternal God who has made our future secure in Christ. Returning to verses 5 and 6, we see the struggle with this, though. Peter writes this. But they, the non-Christians, will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter is writing to Christians being maligned by their friends and their neighbors simply for being Christians. Christians who have struggled to follow Christ by denying their desires, by giving up that which is selfish, And yet they're not doing it for their own sakes and for their own future. They're doing it for God. He calls them to sacrifice. And living like this was hard. Living like this, they wanted to know it made a difference. And yet the unbelievers around them were probably pointing at them and saying, What difference has your life made? What difference has it made? What difference did sitting there and suffering instead of indulging, what difference did that make? What difference did it make that you gave things away instead of retired well? In verse six, Peter is writing about preaching to those who are dead. And though some people think that means dead people getting like post-death preaching, the Bible nowhere speaks of such a thing. In any other case, in fact, it speaks about the urgency of believing before death. And so what he means here is Christians who have previously died. And before their death, they had believed in the gospel. And yet they were told by the outsiders, what difference did it make? They were judged in the flesh, no different from other people. There was no sign of victory, no sign of vindication for their sacrifice, for their suffering, for their selflessness. It's not like a movie where you look and you see this Christian die and all of a sudden their soul just floats up to heaven. You're like, oh good, they did make it. Or their soul sinks down to hell and you're like, oh yeah, well they weren't a Christian. There's no visible sign at death when you go and be with someone at their deathbed. When you go and be with someone at their funeral, there's no sign. You are judged in the flesh the way other people are. They seem no different and the pagans probably just shouted at them like, look at you fools. Why aren't you living for yourselves? And yet Peter tells them, those people who have died now live in the Spirit with God in heaven, even though we cannot see them. And though it seems like there has been no difference, there will come a day when our judge, who is ready, will call all people to give account. It will be on that day that Christians will be distinguished from those who are unbelievers for having believed in the good news of Jesus. People who have not lived for the pleasures of this present life, whether immediate or delayed, they will have lived for the one who called them into service and perhaps even suffering See, on that judgment day, it will be crystal clear who has been joined to Jesus because those of us with faith in Jesus, whom he has saved, will rise from the dead to new and everlasting life. I don't know when that's coming. I know it's next. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 10,000 days or years from now. But Scripture says that day is coming, that Jesus is ready to judge, So let us live today and every day for him, knowing that the timing of all things is that the end is near, that Christ is ready to judge. Let us trust that the time for sin is over, it is past, and let us spend our time trusting in him, knowing no matter what we face, we can face the end with confidence that he has saved us that we stand not in our own security, not in what we have done, but in what he has done for us as we celebrate in the supper today. The time for the end is near, and the time for us to live as God's people is now. Let us do so in his strength. Amen. Let us pray. O merciful God, we thank you for the way in which you have promised us things. Lord, we hold on in faith. We cannot see your coming on some giant countdown clock. It is not marked on a calendar somewhere where we can look forward to the day when it will come. We only know that Jesus is ready. We only know that that day will come for you have promised that it will. Lord, let us set our clocks by that time. Let us live knowing that that time is coming. And let us live for you now as your people, trusting that you have given us all that we need.